Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib hosting the show. And today I'm joined by uh, Carl Bialik, uh, who was uh, on the podcast in 2017. He's been a good friend of the podcast and a helping hand. Uh, on that note, let me welcome the guest. Hey Carl, how are you? Hey, it's a pleasure to be back on. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say, I mean, you've been kind to the podcast and you've sent a lot of uh, knowledgeable guests our way, uh, from Ben Rothenberg to Rohit Brejnat and most recently to Louisa Thomas. So thanks to you. Every time I've asked you, you've obliged. So. And we've tried to reconnect on this uh, quite a few times, but the schedule's in match. But uh, uh, this is as good as an opportunity since you are a New Yorker and New York Open was just, uh, it just concluded uh, yesterday. So it's pretty recent. So let me just uh, start there. Uh, were you on the grounds? Have you been covering it this year or last year? Just uh, fill us through. Yeah, I've been with the New York Open since the beginning. Its first year was 2018. And uh, each year I've attended at least one session or at least one day. And it's it's been a nice addition to the New York Tennessee. And I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think the tournament's aware of that. But, you know, just having a a tour level event with players from all around the world in February is, is a nice compliment to what we get in the summer in New York. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know how often you are on Twitter. I know you've taken a sabbatical or, but I'm sure you still follow the pulse what's being said because you still do uh, your own podcast, which I'm sure everyone who tunes into mine knows already because that's existed a long time before we start hosting ours. And then you're also a regular voice in the tennis abstract. So what I'm going uh, here is uh, kind of a broad question. Uh, a lot of fans are talking about empty stands. And I briefly spoke in my last edition to Damien Coos that it's a function of lack of star power. Uh, New York is a city, of course, that has you know many other sports and it hosts the U.S. Open, used to have the Long Island Open when Lendl and Co. were playing, not uh, maybe in the 90s. So have you heard these things and are you concerned? What do you see on, actually on the grounds? Do you think this tournament has uh, staying power? Uh, let's start there. Well, I think this is a problem at a lot of tournaments around the world, ATP and WTA. And I think star power is a factor, but not the only factor. Uh, New York Open organizers have said one challenge they faced early on is that they mispriced tickets. And, you know, it's it's just... As it is, I think, a tough sell when almost all of your sessions are during the week and many of them during the day during the week to also then have pretty high prices for seats close to the court. One thing I noticed um, when I was there this week is that fans were urged during the day session to move as close to the court as they wanted. And I think that's something that tournaments don't do enough of is just acknowledge okay we really didn't come close to selling out this session so let's at least have a lot of noise near the court let's have a lot of faces in the crowd for those shots near the court uh, on the tv feed so i think you know they're they're working within the demand to at least try to increase the apparent uh, crowd intensity you know star power is is lacking on atp past the very top players and this doesn't really fit in the calendar in a place where a lot of the very top players are going to want to play. So then you look to, well, what about American talent? And many, maybe most of the top-ranked American men were there. And, you know, I didn't see a lot of people there for an Isner match. I didn't see a lot of people there for a Riley Opelka match. Opelka was the defending champ. 
So I think it's it's why it's been such a challenge, especially on ATP past the top levels of the tournaments, that there just isn't an, a lot of talent that's drawing fans beyond the very, very top players. So I think then you just have to get more creative. You know, one thing the tournament did this year, I don't know how much it helped, but they hosted a pickleball tournament in a different part of the arena over the weekend and pickleball is a, a racket sport of growing popularity. So I think that's a smart idea to get people in. Uh, they said they were uh, engaging more with local schools, according to a friend who was also covering the tournament, Matt Moralf, who covers for Ubi tennis. That obviously is, is a smart strategy and, you know, getting people when they're young to get used to attending and they could be the future uh, ball kids and officials and players and, and fans who, who make up this tournament. It's also just not really the New York Open, despite its name. I mean, it's a, it's not in New York City. It's in it's on Long Island, uh, about 20 miles from from well, it's probably about 15 miles from the U.S. Open and maybe 25 miles from Manhattan. And it's maybe most importantly, it's not walking distance from a train stop. So it's really a tournament you have to drive to or take a cab to. And I think the distance coupled with the lack of transit really just caps the demand from people who might not care so much about star power, but just about the opportunity to see pro tennis in February. So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of challenges for this tournament. And often in terms of survival, it comes down to just how well fund, funded is it? How good are they at getting sponsorship? And sometimes that sponsorship can be about things like people really wanting, you know, boxes for hospitality as opposed to, you know, getting themselves out in front of lots of uh, people through TV and, and streaming. So that, that can often be hard to predict just based on looking at the feeds. I mean, we know about tournaments in other parts of the world that are empty throughout the whole week and have existed for years because of funding. Hmm. Well, yeah, I was going to come to uh, the Long Island versus Manhattan if this was the Madden Square Garden, as some might have said on Twitter. So you think that would be the uh, logistical uh, better placed if it was say in Manhattan because so well connected because of the train service uh, not sure if the garden can hold a tennis tournament in, in the fall because of the Knicks and the Rangers but uh, hypothetically is that a better argument yeah I mean MSG or the Barclays Center in Brooklyn those those are both sitting on top of many different subway lines that, um, and they're both connected to commuter rail as well and they're both in, in very densely populated areas. There are lots of people who could walk from work or from home to, to and from both, both of those arenas. Getting a week during the NBA and NHL season in either of those arenas would be tough. In the past, there have been uh, – there, there used to be every year in the lead-up to Indian Wells a one-night exhibition at Madison Square Garden. And it ended – so I think that's an indicator that it wasn't an enormous success. But it – Probably the peak um, seating for that well exceeded the best session the New York Open's ever had as just an indicator of, um, you know, the, the draw of, of one of those arenas in such a central location. On the other hand, for a one-night exhibition, you can also get true star power, including retired players, and you can guarantee they're going to play. I mean, even if you get, you know, Kana Shikori has signed up before for the New York Open, but injury could prevent him from participating at all, or he could get knocked out knocked out in his first match. But if you have a one-night event, you can guarantee that, I think one year, Agassi and Sampras played a set, and McEnroe and 
Lendl, I think, played a set. And, you know, they were going to play that set and that was going to happen and everyone knew it. And that's the kind of draw that you can do with these one night exhibitions that a 250 tournament really struggles with. Even if you get four really good players at the top of the draw, you know, combined, they're going to play let's say they win every single one of their matches except against each other, there's still going to be another 50% of matches plus doubles that aren't going to feature them. So I'm not sure if that math is exactly right, but point is it's, it's just tough with um, tournament format needing a week uh, to guarantee that you can like fill an arena wherever it is. No, I think that's a very valid point. And that goes back to, you know, what I had in mind, how to unfold this conversation it also goes back to the podcast when you came three years ago. I still remember clearly we were talking U.S. Open preview and that time Sam Query was the top ranked male. And uh, you said, uh, you know, he probably will go unnoticed if he were to walk the streets of Brooklyn or, you know, uh, sometime, you know, somewhere near in uh, Fifth Avenue. But that's not the case with the likes of Andy Roddick when he was a top male. And then, of course, Sampras and Agassi were huge stars. So star power is huge. And I was telling this on the last week's podcast to Damien when he was here, that most of the top men outside of the big three are also European. So they're all playing uh, Medvedev, Sitsipas. All these guys are playing the French and Rotterdam indoor tournaments before they head for the Sunshine Double. And Dominic Team is the exception who's in Brazil. So I, I, how much do you think star power... A function here if you take the top three out say if you put a Sitsipas or even a Nishikori who usually has played this event I believe or bring in Nick Kyrgios or Dominic team you think those guys could be a better sell than uh, to the American markets uh, compared to the Opelkas and Isners or you know uh, whoever we had like Steve Johnson yeah I mean I think this event in particular you, you mentioned American events but this event in particular being so close to the US Open grounds is trying to draw that same audience and that audience knows Tsitsipas and team by now maybe as well or better than the top ranked Americans or or at least you know is excited to see them (laughs) at least as much so I, I think there's something to to that although you know I do wonder I think this is a phenomenon in a lot of the Grand Slam host nations and and host cities that there's so much excitement around that event that people kind of forget that there's a calendar the rest of the year and it, it might just be then february it's just not top of mind that they're like oh yeah sure it's, it's a pass that's a guy i'll see in august or september not a guy i'll see in february in an indoor black court you know in a different arena indoor tennis is being a different phenomenon they don't really understand what the significance is of winning the new york open nobody talks about how many new york opens john McEnroe won or you know even any events of that level what they know is the grand slam so i think this is just a, a challenge for tennis broadly is, you know, going beyond the grand slams. I know there are some events that are successful, but, um, when you get past the mandatory events and also when you get outside of Europe, as you said, where you can't just count on people showing up cause they need to play some somewhere and Europe is the most convenient. It's, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be in the business of running a uh, 250 or, you know, WTA international. Yeah, so definitely you're right. It's not just New York, but you know you would think New York would do better, say compared to some other cities, which can, which you know we see every two three years, tournaments lose its spots and then some other city comes into play. So how about the actual tennis that was played? Uh, did you watch any of Kyle Edmund, or are there any takeaways 
that any match that you watch in, watch live or on TV that you would like to share with the listeners here? What's your summary of the Open so far? Yeah, um, it, it was great tennis. I mean, you know, <laughs> when you can buy any ticket and be told to go courtside and see players who are currently or, or recently have been in the top 20, top 30, I mean, that's better. That's a better deal than qualifying, you could say, at the U.S. Open. I mean, you, you do have to pay, but it is just incredible uh, vantage point. And Edmund really impressed, especially at the end of the tournament, although Seppi apparently was injured at the end of that final. But, you know, one of the things I like to bring up from a statistical point of view in tennis is just the extent to which if you can win a close match that could have gone the other way early in a week, that can suddenly become a title, a lot of ranking points, a lot of money for you that you never would have gotten if you hadn't won those close matches. Just looking at Edmund's stats, I mean, his quarterfinal, he won in a third set tiebreak over Quan, and Quan won a greater percentage of return points than Edmund did. So that certainly could have gone the other way. And even in the second round, looks like an easy scoreline 6-2-6-4 over Kepfer, who was the surprise, I think, fourth rounder at the U.S. Open. But that was almost an even match by return points one. Edmund was just clutch. So I wouldn't look at this as a sign necessarily that Edmund is suddenly going to um, – you know, return to where he was in the top 15 a couple of years ago because he, he wasn't dominating and he was playing exclusively players outside the top 50. But he, I mean, this is a great result for him. And certainly the way he won the semi and final were very impressive. And Hikmanovic, I, I, it was the first time I saw him in person. I really liked what I saw and uh, expect expect great things from him and Edmund handled him easily in the semi so that's certainly a good sign uh, elsewhere I mean I think Opelka continues to look like he can build something like a John Isner career maybe although he's got he's got a lot of room to grow to <laughs> maybe not room to grow in height but grow in game to get there and Otherwise, he's just playing these lottery matches, and it's hard to really build momentum during a week and win consecutive matches when each match is going to come down to some tie breaks. So I, I don't know exactly what to do about it. I mean, we've seen the three main guys on tour of around that height all being among the worst returners in the sport, so it seems like not necessarily a coincidence, although maybe it's just that when your serve's that good, it it doesn't matter. You can still reach this level at that height, but I... I I was happy to see him on practice on a practice court playing a lot of return points and, and really working on that. I mean, he's got to keep working on the serve. He's got to keep holding. But if he's going to consistently be able to make it late in in weeks, he's got to be able to start beating guys ranked below him more comfortably and, and having more margin for error than just winning tie breaks and getting, you know, a mini break or two in the tie breaks. So, yeah, it was it was definitely there were a lot of good matches and a lot of good players. And for any tennis fan, there was a ton to enjoy the, the energy it takes to actually get someone to get to the, to the Coliseum and to, you know, pay the ticket and even to find out in the first place about the New York open. I think that's the challenge. Once you're there, it's a great experience and the visuals on the black court live. And I think on TV are really good. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, let's stay on Opelka and you made some, uh, you know, very interesting observation, which of course, Anybody who watches Opelka would not disagree, but yeah, his serve uh, is 
one of the best already. Uh, so how are these guys covered according to you? I know you are not into full-time tennis coverage like you used to uh, back in your day, but you're doing a lot of podcasts and you're still very informed. You think the media, especially in the U.S., are covering these guys in a way, of course, media has to be not biased, but are these guys being promoted, uh, you know, the, the young American men? Because in the women's side, you know, with Sophia Cannon, it looks like the problem is not there. With Serena Williams, still very active, Coco Goff, there are plenty of good stories. Are the men being covered or what is the balancing act there? Do you see enough coverage for the men? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the women have crossed over beyond tennis media. So Serena Williams is a, you know, a phenomenon and has been on covers of magazines and plenty of people who don't otherwise cover tennis have written about her and about Venus Williams, who got a big New York Times magazine story, I think, during last year's Open by a writer who didn't otherwise cover tennis. And of course, Kennan, by being such a young uh, Grand Slam champ, Coco Gauff, I mean, what incredible achievement at 15. So they, they've kind of transcended the tennis media. And I think that's kind of what it takes now because there isn't much of a tennis media in the U.S. at this point. I mean, there, there's the great work you're doing. There's There's great podcasts. But a lot of the best work, I think, is being consumed by tennis fans. And what tennis would really need to grow is for general sports coverage, for people who are consuming sports coverage broadly to be exposed to tennis. So for instance, Tennis Sengren, speaking of tennis, hit an incredible tweener winner during this tournament. And I think it was in his uh, first and only singles match, which was a third set tiebreak loss to Johnson. And it was one of SportsCenter's top 10 plays, maybe the top 10 play. And that's the kind of thing. That's where someone who isn't otherwise already aware of of the sport and you know where the tournaments are being played this week and who number fifty nine in the world is. That's where you might actually grab them. And I don't think the American men in general are doing much of that. Um, so whatever the tennis media is doing, there's very few who are full time in the U.S. covering it to begin with. My experience. I was never covering it full time, but even when I did cover it, you got more attention writing for an American outlet, writing about Federer and to a lesser extent Djokovic and Nadal than you would about any American player. So there wasn't like the built in interest. Oh, because it's an American player, I'll read this because John Isner is the top American. I'm interested. And so it's kind of on them to become stories that can transcend that cycle. And you know, when's the Isner made the semis at Wimbledon? I guess that was two years ago. And otherwise, we haven't had like a giant American men's tennis story. If Tennis Sangren had beaten Federer, that would have been an example. Now, Tennis Sangren has been a complicated story. He has transcended tennis media, but not for his tennis, more for what he's written on social media and hurting a lot of people with comments that they deemed hate, hateful and, um, you know, having a very complicated relationship with the media about it. But if he had actually, with his tennis, made the semis of the Australian Open beating Roger Federer, that's the kind of thing that might have broken through. So I think we're kind of, we're not getting there. It's not going to happen just for media covering them more. I think there needs to be something tangible to cover. Yeah, I think you're onto something here for sure, because uh, uh, with this day and age of uh, you know podcasting and tennis, Twitter, where every breaking news for tennis 
is first. You can you find stuff there before you Google it, and then five minutes later, something will be on Google. Uh, back in the day, uh, I consumed tennis in India through the writings of Rohit Brijnath and other writers and came to U.S., follow tennis, and John Wertheim's mailbag was huge. But now it's about podcasting. It's about, I don't know, the, is the average fan smarter now or is this the medium shifted? Uh, because that's, again, I keep going back to the American men. Uh, so w- what is uh, at stake here? Because we still read about Tsitsipas, we still read about theme and other players. Is it the style that American men play? Because the women, again, has no shortage. Even we miss the names of Sloan and Madison Keys. I believe they will sell out the the Long Island tournament if you put them in February. That's a, I think that's a very legit argument. Yeah, I mean, I think style is a factor. Although, look, I know many people, including probably listeners of the show, who do not care for the style of tennis John Isner plays. But if John Isner won the U.S. Open, that would still be a big story. I mean, literally in his case, but it it would we would we would read it. We would see it probably on the cover of the New York Times to the extent that people still are interested in what's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He'd have a good shot at that. Be in the front of ESPN.com like it would it would gain attention. And if you were in the final, the event of him being in the final would be a big deal. So I think style is an issue. And maybe especially toward the top of the rankings among the American men, there is some uniformity of style. I mean, certainly like serve and forehand while big in all of net men's tennis or maybe even bigger for the top American men. But yeah, I think, I think results would transcend that if they came and a few years ago, we were pretty excited about the group who are now, I guess, ranging from like age 20 to 24 or so. But they've, they for the most part, kind of stalled. I mean, Opelka's in that group and is one of the most successful. But I think they've all sort of, I, I don't know if any of them have broken through the top 25 at any point. And um, I don't know if any have made a quarter. Did Tiafo make a quarter? Tiafo made Australian, Australian quarters last year. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's the best result at a slam for any of them. Um, so, you know, they're close and one of them could do it. But I I think, you know, t- speaking of style, like Tiafo, well, he does have a big serve in forehand, certainly has a different uh, stroke production than other players. And he has a different biography than than most other American players. If he made a slam final, that would be that would be huge for American tennis. But he's got to do it. And I don't think. I don't think the media, the lack of media coverage is holding them back from doing it. I think just tennis is holding them back from doing it. I think playing style-wise, I would just throw that in. Uh, Tommy Paul uh, is getting a lot of yeah. rave reviews, even from uh, the the audience that usually says American tennis is you know, the one-two punch of serve and forehand. Tommy Paul has gotten a lot of rave reviews. And again, this podcast was not intended to become what's wrong with the American men's tennis, but <laughs> but you know one thing led to another, and you you always have good insights. So let's uh, uh, move conversation across the pond to Rotterdam, where Gael Monfils again. Uh, it's a very different conversation, you know. Too exciting a player, uh, frustratingly sometimes in the past being defensive. Uh, the guy wins two back-to-back titles and played quite physical tennis. And then in his post-match speech, he owes to his coach and team say we have bigger plans. So. Uh, that's just good for tennis. If Monfils, you know, of course, bigger plans could mean, you know, they're targeting bigger things, Masters 1000, Roland Garros, whatnot. So did you watch any of his tennis this week or the last two weeks? And your thoughts on that? Yeah, I did catch some of it. And 
I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I mean, putting aside any sort of objective coverage. So happy to see him playing well. And, you know, I think he's, I think just, so he's basically Rafa's age. He's three months younger. And there's some, even though in many ways they played completely different styles, they both play, as you say, very physically. They both had injury struggles. And I think a lot of people probably would have doubted Monfils being still active, let alone top 10 at this stage, much the way people doubted Rafa. So I think just, just seeing him a regular on the tour, you know, playing consecutive weeks and, and finishing the second week in such great form at this age is fantastic. And so many people over the years have urged him to increase his aggression and, and shorten points and take advantage of the, the power that he possesses on his forehand. And he still can grind with the best of him, which means he often does grind with the best of them. But I, I think this is the best, uh, close to the best we've ever seen him play. And that's just an incredible thing to say about someone who has played so much tennis and, and dealt with injuries. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy is a treat to watch if you haven't watched him live because I got a, got a chance to see him live uh, on the old grandstand, and you know he 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 can he can put out a show. You know, very exciting brand of tennis. Sometimes something that looks very uh, frustratingly defensive. If you are a hardcore Monfils fan, that he doesn't play too much often, but live, I think he's just uh, he, put him on your checklist. You know, if you have to watch him, so. Uh, so def- definitely, I mean, he's already in the race by winning two titles and uh, still we are in February. So a lot of people are talking about, you know, his chances uh, to finish strong in London. And that's what Tennis Twitter does. You know, we we take temperature on a weekly basis. And that, on that note, let's talk about Felix Ogiali. seem very young. I don't expect you to, you know, make predictions here. But again, you know, we I'm sure in the other podcasts we've talked about him. Enormous talent, a lot of upside, but then he's a work in progress. We know what's went on with Zvera. We know Sitsipas met with him. They're like a few years older than him. Your thoughts on his week and uh, is, is it too early to get excited when you see a week like this? Because then, you know, he can lose back-to-back matches at Indian Wells and Miami. So what's the balancing act here when you talk about Felix? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think that First of all, just about everyone on the men's tour outside the big three can have a couple of losses in a row, have a couple of first round losses in a row. And it's just part of being on tour. And sometimes you get a tough draw. Sometimes you don't have a great day. I mean, he lost Felix lost first round Australian Open, but he's he's playing Ernest Golbus, former top, former top tenor, big serve. Um, not not a great first round draw, I think. And he lost uh, his second match in Montpellier to Herbert, who is a big server and can just, you know, force you to hold every game. These are not terrible losses. And I think we can sometimes overreact. I mean, one thing that I come back to is my point about, let's say, Edmund. I mean, if Edmund had lost in the quarterfinals of New York to Quan. It's probably a disappointing week overall, and you add to that some other disappointing weeks, and you say, here's here's a pattern. He wins that match in a third set tiebreak, goes on to win the week, and totally changes the story. So these losses, especially close ones, I think we have to remember not only 
the loser almost won the match, but because of the nature of tennis, he could have gone on to win two, three, four, five, six more matches. Who knows uh, after that point? So there's this real, you know, uh, two doors phenomenon and they went through one door, but who knows what would have happened through the other one. Uh, so that's just a general comment. And then in terms of, you know, Felix and his results, certainly slowed down last year after just a torrid start where he was great on hard courts, particularly making the semis at Miami and almost making the final, losing two tie breaks to Isner. And then, you know, made two, made a final, excuse me, made a final on clay in Lyon and then made a final and a semi in the lead up to Wimbledon on grass. So here's a guy who's, a, you know, three surface threat at the time he was not even 19 yet. And so that slowed down and maybe we shouldn't be surprised. The rest of his season was mediocre, but when somebody does that much at that age, I don't think it's ever safe to say he will definitely do that much more at a certain age, but it is generally safe barring injury to say at some point in his career, he's going to do a lot. I mean, if he's in the top 20 uh, or he was already in the top 25 at age 18, that bodes very well for him entering the top 10 at a young age and the top five at a pretty young age and so on. So he's going to have some some more rough weeks. He's going to have some more, you know, first round losses, but he's um, he he should have a lot more great weeks. Yeah, I think you're not alone. There's a very astute uh you know, barring any serious injuries, I mean, he definitely has quite the upside as far as potential goes. So let's uh, let's cap this conversation off uh, with a generic title uh, topic that never seems to die a death on tennis Twitter, and I'm sure you've been part of many conversations. I don't have a quote index speed with me, but uh, the current talk is Rotterdam was playing very slow, and now someone even said on Twitter, that even Rio, the clay coats, the ball seemed to be flying, it seems, uh, faster than Rotterdam. Of course, some sarcasm in there, but uh, what's your take uh, on this? Uh, you've been consuming tennis, you've been producing podcasts, even at core you are a fan. So what does Carl Biali think? Do you think there should be a balance where the coats, some coats are at least playing somewhat fast? Because a lot of people are saying this is also related to long tennis uh, battles, which can extend uh, playing careers because today, of course, we are talking clay, but uh, you don't want a three-hour, three-set match. That's a counter-argument sometimes of uh, the slowness that produces, you know, over-physical, gritty battles. So your thoughts on that? I know I loaded a lot of things in there, but <laughs> no, take, I, it, take I, it which way you want, yeah. Well, you know, this is going to be a slow court rally where you, you hit a lot of balls at me and I'll hit a lot back at you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so my my first thought is let's let's find out for sure what's going on. Um because perception including of players does not always match either the court, you know, the what's measured on court by officials or what what's apparent from other stats, especially ace rate. You want to get like an adjusted ace rate based on who you're who the players are are facing, but just to give you a very unadjusted, very raw look, I'm, I'm clicking around on the Rotterdam tournament pages on tennisabstract.com. And last year at Rotterdam, when Monfils also won the, the title, in the semi, he hit aces on 4% of his serves and his opponent, Medvedev, 6%. 
In the final, Monfils hit aces on 1%, and Vavrinka, his opponent, 3%. Those are very low percentages for three guys who are very good servers. And if you look at this year, Monfils in the semi-aces on 20% and final 8%, and his opponents 4% and 2%. Maybe Monfils was serving way better this year. Maybe his opponents, Krajanovic and Oger Aliasim, who are generally very good returners, were, were not seeing the ball well. But... Just say, like, let's let's check. Let's look at all the matches. Let's look at all the stats. Now, let's assume, though, that it's correct. And let's assume, bar, besides for those two Monfils matches, things generally were slower this year. Although I do see a lot of matches with 10% and higher ace rates this year. If that's the case, I totally am on board for variety. And Jeff Sackman from Tennis Abstract has looked at this, and I, I think it's it kind of depends on how you look at it. But in general, it looks like there is still quite a bit of variety in tournaments. I think what's so frustrating potentially for fans and probably much more for players is that you can't necessarily predict how fast a tournament is going to be and maybe just as important how the balls are going to play we're usually talking about the surface when we talk about speed but as you just mentioned the balls can fly that's often because of factors having nothing to do with the balls themselves more the climate but indoors it's it's the balls um, interacting with the surface and if you're Monfils and you want to set your schedule I think it's fair to know this is exactly how the court's going to play and these are exactly the balls we're going to use and how they're going to play. And then you get to decide. And if you're a fan and you come to expect that Rotterdam, when you show up in person or you watch on TV, is going to play a certain way, why not fulfill that expectation? I, I just don't see what tennis gets out of all of this mystery around it. So part of what I'm saying about we don't have the data yet is that it's not like the ATP prints at the beginning of the year. These are going to be the speeds of all these tournaments, and these are how the balls are going to play at each of these tournaments. And I don't see why that would hurt the tour for everyone to have full knowledge in advance, especially players who are signing these entry lists, I think, what is it, up to six weeks in advance, maybe more than that. They should they should know what to expect. Fans should know what to expect. And then if you're not a fan of slow indoor tennis, the New York Open, I think, has a reputation for being faster. You can watch that one instead. It, it's just, it's. I think the uncertainty is potentially as bad as the lack, potential lack of variety. No, I think definitely uh, this is a sport where top players have said, I've been in press rooms. I think there was New Haven when, uh, I think it was, uh, I got Radwanska, I believe, someone asked her, and she said, you talk about surfaces, every week we play with a different set of balls. And that sometimes can cause injuries too. So that, that that's a that's a very well known issue in the tennis world. How governance and you make some brilliant points. If these are published in advance, that could at least make the top players on either side, if they prefer a certain speed. Of course, you know we are not even touching appearance fees and what else goes into, you know, locking these schedules. But yeah, that's definitely food for thought. And I think you came up with numbers which. Uh, kind of did the counter argument if Monfils is serving better then the code is definitely not as slow or slower than last year so I think uh, those are very good points and I'm sure anyone who tunes in will find this insightful so I know Carl is uh, close to 11 p.m. it's like 10 45 uh, thanks for doing this uh, on a Monday night it was enjoyable and uh, just to keep us in true form we're keeping slightly above the 30 minute podcast you know uh, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back uh, sometime soon so we can 
carry on more discussions on our beloved favorite sport. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Sake. We're continuing the segment of the podcast. Matt Zemek is joining here. Hey, Matt, how are you? Doing well. So, plenty of topics, but I think the most obvious topic is the return of Kim Kleisters. We all were uh, keenly awaiting this to happen. I watched some of it live at home. You wrote a piece about it, but for our uh, listening audience, uh, fire away. What are your impressions? Was this a good first account, playing a top player who's been in form herself? So, what are the first impressions of what you saw a couple days ago? Yeah, so I think the key observation to make is that if, you know, this was the Garbinha Muguruza of 2019 under Sam Sumik, who, you know, lost her way, uh, never really gained any sort of momentum or confidence for a prolonged period of time. If this was 2019 Muguruza, you know, we might not be all that optimistic about Kim Kleisters. But of course, Muguruza just made the Australian Open final, you know, was in a third set, was right there with a chance to uh, win a third major championship. And Kleisters took that version of Muguruza into a second set tiebreaker, very nearly got into a third set. So it's it has to be very positive for Kim Kleisters. You know, she's been away from the tour for more than seven full years. So for a comeback, this was not bad at all. I mean, if if uh, the opponent, you know, was, I don't, I'm not, I don't need to name a name, but just if the opponent was somewhere like from number 90 to number 110, Kleister's probably wins, you know, unless that opponent um, would have had an unusually good day at the office. So the fact that Kleister's almost took the Australian Open finalist to three sets, I mean, that but that bodes really well. And one of the big things we need to keep in mind here is that Kim Kleister's is 36. That's two years younger than Serena Williams. So the idea that, you know, I mean, it's it's extremely rare to see an athlete such as Kleister's make not a first comeback to the tour after retirement. This is her second comeback. You know, it's her, it's, it is her third act, the third act of her career. So it's a very unusual thing. There's not really a set precedent for it, um, but she's, she is 36. You know, this is not Kimiko Date playing well into her 40s. Kleisters is a little bit younger than Serena. She probably has a lot of good tennis still in her, and I think she proved that against Muguruza. So heading into Indian Wells, that's going to be a really spicy plot point, not only to see Kleisters play, but since Indian Wells is a seven-round tournament, you know, 96 players, so you know we have 32 players in that in the first of the seven rounds. Kleisters, one would think, would get a decent draw in that first round. And if you can get past that, you know, then she can accumulate a few matches. Maybe she'll get on a little bit of a run. No, not to the semis or the final. But if she can get to the round of 16 in Indian Wells, you know, that would be four, four matches. And that would be something to really take with her for the rest of the year. You know, obviously, at some point, she's going to have to play several matches at a tournament so that she regains the muscle memory of learning how to physically recuperate from a match the previous day and to go through that cycle a few times at the same tournament. So I'm thinking that you know, if, if Kleisters can at least get to the round of 32 
in Indian Wells. That would mean three matches. If she can at least do that in Indian Wells, she could begin to fully build back her fitness base for the rest of the season. And and so if she's a contender at uh, Wimbledon or, or the summer hard court season, you know, that that will make things really, really interesting um, when, when we get to uh, North American hard courts. You know, I don't think we're going to see all that much from her on clay. I, I could be proved wrong, though. But uh, but Indian Wells becomes very uh, interesting in terms of how we measure Kim Kleister's evolution in 2020. Yeah, I think you made some interesting points there, as usual. And uh, you're right. This is unprecedented. You cannot compare this to anyone. I was going to try to compare this with Hingis, but Hingis was way too young when she made that comeback and that lasted two years. And she was, I think, 23 or 24. And you're right, Kim is, this is her third act. This is just, uh, you know, uncharted. You know, this, this, these are new waters. I mean, this this is something really great for the game. And she's, and she showed like she could hang with one of the best players, like you said. And uh, the impressive part was she was making mistakes. First match, there's, you know, so much to take away and so much to overlook. You know, the rhythm of the match, rhythm of the big stadium, playing a player uh, who was just in Australian Open final. So, yeah, like you said, uh, the evolution uh, will be reviewed very keenly throughout. And Indian Wells is the next stop indeed. Uh, so let me ask you about another player who is in form. We talked about her in depth recently, Sophia Cannon. She came at uh, losing end in this current tournament that's going on in Dubai. So we can talk about because she's not active in this tournament. You wrote a piece about her. And you were tweeting about the inner game. So those of uh, those of the listeners who haven't followed those tweets, if you want to shed some light and redirect, do a plug into your article as well. Well, you know, this didn't really apply to her loss to Elena Rybakina uh, in Dubai, but you know, it's more about the Australian Open and just that you know, Kennan in fairly short order has established herself as the kind of player who, in a very tight scoreboard situation, you know, she relishes it. And this is something you can't teach. And I was talking to uh, a tennis watching friend of mine uh, the other night. Um, we were talking about how various athletes and various tennis players handle pressure. And th- this friend of mine said that, you know, some athletes are, this was his uh, direct quote, to the manner born, meaning that they, they live in a house w- where they are comfortable with pressure. That's what my friend was, was trying to say. You know, they, they treat pressure as something that they accept as a fact of life. I mean, it's like, I'm a tennis player. I live for these situations. I'm going to handle them extremely well. That's the to the manner born construct my friend was trying to get across. You can't teach that. And Kennan has it. You know, an innately positive attitude toward pressure situations. That's what Sophia Kennan has. It's, It's a central reason why she won in Australia. And that's why she's very likely to win more majors as she goes along. I mean, you know, in terms of like the exact number, we don't need to speculate on that. But you can just tell that she loves pressure. She embraces it. And not all athletes do. Some athletes never figure it out. Some athletes don't have the innate love of pressure situations that someone such as Kennan has. But they learn to cope. They get better. Think of Stan Bavrinka as an instructive example. It took him a long time, but at the age of 28, shortly before turning 29, helped by Magnus Norman, you know, he learned to make pressure his friend, and uh, that that transformed his career. And we've seen other tennis players as they get older, 28, 29, 30, 31. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki at the 2018 Australian Open 
you know, evolve and improve. Angelique Kerber would be another great example from the WTA side. You know, she she had to walk in the wilderness for several years, but learned how to deal with pressure. But Kenan has the advantage of having that innate ability. It's innate for her. Uh, and uh, so many a- other athletes don't have it. So that that's really the foremost uh, quality that she brings to the table. No, that's, that's brilliant as usual. So let me ask you one more thing again. Uh, and you always uh, live up to these questions. So you think problem solving is sequential in this aspect of, uh, you know, learning to cope with pressure or those are two different elements for a player's, uh, you know, inner game or development uh, as far as, you know, digging deep? I, I think it, I think it's at the core. Um, it's, it's really a foundational aspect because as soon as you play tennis and I mean, Hey, I've, I've never played in a tennis tournament, you know, in, in uh, high school or college, but I mean, I've played on a court and I think anyone who plays tennis soccer, you know, even if it's just a weekend hacker outing with your buddies over a few beers, as soon as you're on the tennis court and you're playing a match and you, and you, and you keep score, you will encounter situations in which you realize, Oh geez, I was out of position or, Oh crap. You know, I don't have very good technique or, Oh darn, I, you know, th- there are things I have to adjust to. So problem solving strikes me as something that is intrinsic to tennis. It's not something you learn or realize later. You learn r- on every point, or at least the potential to learn exists on every point and no matter what level you're playing at. So I think that, that, that problem solving is, is really at the heart. It's at the foundation and the essence of playing tennis. I think the, the add on what comes later is handling the professional responsibilities, the crowds, the pressure, the media scrutiny, uh, you know, everyone else telling you how good you are or everyone else telling you how much you've underachieved. Uh, those are the things that come later, but problem solving on the court that, that strikes me as intrinsic to the experience of playing tennis competitively. Okay. So that, that answers my question. Do you have anything else before we wrap this up? We've, and, uh, any announcements or any written work that's coming for the listeners? Oh, just that, you know, we're having regular coverage of Dubai, uh, this week and, uh, we will, uh, certainly be all over, uh, Dubai for the for the men and um, and then and then leading up to Indian Wells with full coverage of that. Um, in terms of you know other notable events in tennis, we need to point out that Jennifer Brady, uh, Elena Ribikina, and also Muguruza, who won a very tough match over Kudermetova uh, in three sets after her win over Kleisters. Those three players, Brady, um, uh, Ribikina, and Muguruza. Uh, all really having a, a solid week in Dubai, and they're all showing signs of being able to consistently put together good tennis. That um, they have all been impressive stories, and uh, we also have to mention that Ons Jabir uh, losing a heartbreaker to Simona Halep by two points in the final set tiebreaker. She has also built on her Australia campaign and is also showing that she could have a really solid. 2020 season so a lot of exciting fresh faces uh for the wta plus plus muguruza um you know showing us that maybe she can uh harness that potential under conchita martinez so a lot of great wta stories so far um as we hit uh the second half of february 
Yeah, so there you go. There's plenty of tennis, and like Matt mentioned, plenty of uh, tennis narratives to follow. And we'll also do plugins for the, our last two podcasts. Like Matt's been tweeting, if you follow him keenly on Twitter, uh, Skip Schwartzman was here reviewing the Australian Open, and you can go back to that podcast. He talks about the inner game. And Damien Kust was here last week, and today on the eve of Brandon uh, Nakashima recording Maiden quarterfinal appearance uh, on his ATP debut again. You can go back to these podcasts. They are archived on our pages. Uh, and, uh, yeah, these, these, some of these performances resonate. That's uh, unfolding in the current weeks. So this is Saqib and Matt signing off, and we'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.